right, good morning, everyone. Glad to have everyone here. Said we had our 9 o'clock service, and thank you all for coming to the 1030. So let's stand, let's sing, and we'll get going.
be seated and brother come share with us boy it's good to be in the house of the lord today amen all right and those of you who are joining us live welcome we're so glad to have you with us today and uh, if you're new here, you may not notice these changes if you're looking into the building right now, but quite a bit has been done this week. And thanks to Brother Greg Weber and his crew, uh, we appreciate that so much. The ceiling has been painted, the speakers have been painted, the back wall has been redone, stage has been redone, and uh, we're just now anxious to get the carpeting redone. And so praise the Lord, lots happening, and we're excited. And so thank you for your faithfulness and your giving and uh, for being here this morning. Well, let's do a couple of announcements here, and this is really not an announcement, just a reminder. This is Memorial Weekend, and so we want to make sure that we honor those that have given their lives for us and the freedoms that we enjoy. It's a blessing to be in the place where we have the freedoms we do, isn't it? If you've been reading around about the things going on around the world, it's just uh, such a, a terrible thing to think about, even our brothers and sisters who are living in such difficult circumstances in other places of of the world. But yet we have such freedoms, and we never want to forget that. and never want to forget those that have given their lives for us, that we might have the freedom that we do. And so we'll be praying about that and thanking the Lord for them in just a minute. Um, Some have been asking about the times. They're going to stay the same, both a 9 a.m. and a 10.30 service for the next several weeks. We'll keep you informed of all this and changes as we're ready to make those happen. Uh, but uh, thank you for that. Some folks really like the 9 a.m. Had a good crowd here this morning, and uh, we're just glad that you can join us either way. And we just want to make that available to each of you. A quick mention also, as I did last week, we're not going to be doing any passing out of plates or taking up a collection as we normally would. You can send that in either through our website. Uh, there is a box on the inside wall of the vestibule. If you're here, you can drop that off on Sunday mornings. You can bring it by the church here. Uh, you can send a check through your bank if you like. And I hate to keep bringing up issues about money. I don't like to talk about that, but some folks have asked uh, what, what's going on. And so just want to keep repeating these things so people know what's going on, okay? All right. Well, we've just been so blessed this week. I trust that you've been enjoying that beautiful sunshine these last couple of days after the rain, needed rain. But uh, what a joy it's been to have these uh, past couple days. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together as we look into his word. Father, we first of all always want to be careful to thank you for our glorious salvation. Thank you for rescuing us and for seeing fit to call us by name and to touch our hearts that we might be people of yours. And Lord, we also especially pause this weekend to thank you for those people who have given their lives, men and women, young and old, that uh, have served faithfully in the armed services to protect this land. And so, Lord, we, we just honor you, really, for giving us people like that that would give their lives for us, that we might have a place of safety and freedom to live while we understand that freedom is not free because of the great cost that people have paid for it. We pray that you would help us to never, never, never take lightly the freedoms that we have in this land. And for our leaders, those that we agree with, those that we disagree with, Lord, that all is established by you. All authority is given by you according to your word. And so we honor you today for these things and honor you for the privilege of having the freedom now to join together in, pres- in, uh, in physical presence as we've been struggling these last many weeks through this virus. We pray that many other churches will be able to open soon and people will be able to get back to 
whatever that normal is going to look like, Lord, we just thank you and pray that you would make yourself known in these days. Now, Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would hear from you today, and may we be willing to listen to your spirit as you speak to us. We ask now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, I have been doing for you uh, little mini sermons, if you will, each day, six days a week, uh, sending them out by daily devotion. And so we've covered a lot of subjects, a lot of topics in those mini sermons. And so I feel it's necessary for us to jump back into the Gospel of Matthew where we started some time ago. So that's where we're going to be. So find your place in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be specifically looking at verses 27 through 30. Uh, and by the way, if you're interested, all of those daily devotions are also on our website. You can go to visitlaurelhill.org and you'll see those devotions. They'll download for you right there. Okay. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30. I'm going to ask you if you're here with us to please stand. And certainly if you're online watching, we'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word. If you're able, if not, that's okay. God understands. You have heard that it was said, Jesus is preaching, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. All right, praise the Lord. You may be seated. I've titled the message today, Marital Unfaithfulness Begins in the Heart. Marital Unfaithfulness Begins in the Heart. Over the years, as I know many of you have experienced through some kind of relationship, I also have experienced people who have suffered through marital unfaithfulness. Uh, I was thinking uh, earlier as I was telling the first service that I remember a guy named Tom that I worked with many years ago when I was in manufacturing came in on one Monday morning and he came as we kind of conversed a little bit and and just had this blank on his face and said, I found out this weekend that my wife has been unfaithful to me. And so the last several months, the months after that rather, he was in his own words kind of like a zombie just not really knowing how to think or feel or really what to express. And it was a very, very trying, very tragic situation. Thankfully, they did come back together, and I lost touch with them uh, after I left that uh, organization, but not sure how that happened. But I do remember how tragic it was. In our church uh, years ago, when we were in another city, uh, there was a good friend of ours who was married to a lady who ended up having uh, an adulterous affair and left that relationship as well. And that was also a very, very painful time as we helped him work through that the best we knew how. It's challenging to know what to say and how to help people that are experiencing something like that. And then just uh, last year, there was a young man that uh, we've known well over the years and uh, not a part of our church, but showed up one Day actually called me and said, hey, can I come by? I need to talk to you about something. And as he did, he just began to uh, relay what was happening in his life with his wife and that uh, he believed she was having an adulterous affair and certainly found out that to be true over the weeks. And uh, we spent a lot of time together 
and I tried to help him as much as I could through the emotion of it all and what God had said and try to encourage him uh, through that time and just a very, very sad state of affairs and that relationship ended up breaking. And just this last week, our son Jordan was telling us about one of his buddies from basic training that has come back from his deployment and has found out that his new wife, just before he left, they were married, has uh, wanted out of the relationship. Don't know all the details of that, but there is some guesstimating on what's going on. There's nothing more devastating to the heart, to the soul of a person than infidelity. There's nothing more painful. It's absolutely heart-wrenching for many people involved. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. And the reality is God knows that. God knows how challenging and how hurtful it is to people who have undergone something like that. And so years ago in Exodus chapter 20, as he was developing the nation of Israel, he said to them as the seventh of his ten commandments, thou shalt not or you shall not commit adultery. Very clear, very straightforward, without any confusion at all, he made that known. And we say, well, what exactly is adultery? Well, adultery is just what you think it is. It is sexual activity between people who are not married to each other. Very clear. The sad part is the flesh has a way of reducing or ignoring God's command. So as much as God's command was abundantly clear and has always been clear, the heart is often lost in its own way of doing things, which is what God is most concerned with. He wants our hearts. And that's what the Lord has been preaching through this sermon as we're making our way through it. He is continually bringing up the heart, the heart, the heart. Examine your hearts. And God knows the heart. And we've seen this in the past, but just a little bit of a review here. Second Chronicles 16:9, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Notice he's not just looking for the outward actions, but he's looking for the heart. Jeremiah 17:10, I the Lord search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. It is the issue of the heart. And so to lie with another man's wife or vice versa is to sin from the heart. It's not just an external act. It's not just something that is visible on the outside. But the Lord's point is it all begins in the heart. And now what makes the subject so challenging is that every one of us, every person is tempted sexually in some way. In other words, every one of us is given to those temptations, making all of us, the people of Jesus' day and even us today, guilty before God. We all, in some way, at some point, have struggled with some area, not necessarily adultery, but some area of sexual temptation. And the problem is the world doesn't help us. The world is not a friend to us in this way. In fact, it pushes us into it. In fact, I would say it even holds our faces in its presence. No matter where we go, there is some sexual innuendo that causes us to be drawn into its trap. You go to any store just about, not 100%, but just about every store, every television show, every movie, and we've watched this grow throughout the years, even the kids' movies have some form of sexual innuendo or sexual temptation, whether it's outward ways or just subtly. 
in the dialogue or some picture or something. In fact, if you watch the Food Channel today on uh, television, you'll see and hear people often refer to the phrase of how sexy food is. And that just looks sexy. And so it's the constant pull on our minds. It's constantly in front of us. And it is just never ending. We ask the question, well, why is that? Why is the world so pushing this in our faces? Well, it's very simple, really. It's because the drive of every person is there, but also because sex sells. It's a moneymaker, without question. And again, the worst part is, that the challenging part is, is that our sinful selves enjoy it. We enjoy it in a certain way. We want it. We long for it. In fact, there are times where we can't stop pursuing it. Again, because that's what sin does. It's devastating in this area. It just drives us to fulfill our lusts. That's why we have to have ministries like Compassionate Hope. Brother Al Henson, the ministry that we have supported here at the church, is in Thailand and Laos rescuing young children, predominantly young girls, out of the sex slave trade. And that exists, the ministry has to exist because there are those who are making money off of this very subject is how tragic it is. It's all about money, 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 and helping people fulfill their sexual sinful lusts. Now, you would think that through this pandemic that it would become less of an issue, that illicit sex would decline, but that's not the case. In fact, I was doing some research this week, and I found an article on The Economist website. This was just last month saying this, pornography is having a good pandemic. As an industry, it is well adapted to a world in lockdown. It has already largely moved online, and its consumers often voluntarily self-isolate. Now, as Mike Stable of the Free Speech Coalition, an industry group in Los Angeles, puts it, legions are, quote, stuck at home and looking for an outlet, unquote. Most online porn is free. Last month, traffic on Pornhub, a giant website, for instance, was up 22% compared to March. And so that's a huge, huge number. In fact, illicit sex is such an issue that even the Christian world struggles with it. I read an article by P&H Publishing this week as well, and they said this, something very similar, but talking about the Christian world, pornography is a billion-dollar industry that seeps into homes. Sadly, it is just as prevalent in the church. A study done by Covenant Eyes, which is an online software protection kind of a thing to help people keep from going from this, or rather it will actually report to a a friend of yours whom you've agreed to work with what sites you are going to, showed that 64% of Christian men view pornography. 64% of Christian men at least once a month. And of these, 39% would classify their use of pornography as excessive. And, of course, it's worse because of the global pandemic being stuck inside. Now, the article continues by saying, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, porn searches went up among males and females of all ages, both genders of all ages. And, you know, the reality also is that Satan doesn't have to work very hard at this. I mean, we often want to blame him for most of our sinfulness, but and certainly he's behind the temptations of a lot of it. But the reality is we are sexual creatures. God made us that way. It's purposeful on his part. 
Uh, in fact, in the Garden of Eden, God, very in the very beginning of their relationship, said, go, be fruitful, and multiply. He built us this way to populate the world. It is sin, though, that has caused us to go the other direction and been what has corrupted us so much from the world that God has made. And now sex is, if not the, certainly one of the most hottest selling commodities in the world, even if it means hurting people in the interim, for all for the process of either making money or for fulfilling its desire. And that's really where the heart comes in. The heart is what's behind all of this. The heart of man is the problem. And, of course, when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the inner man, the person who they really are, the soul of the individual. And the Bible tells us that the soul of every individual is broken by sin, every one of us. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Lord says. And we desire the same kinds of things when it comes to temptations, especially in this area of sexual sin, which is what the Lord's point is. And because sexual sin is so powerful and the temptations are so powerful, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were working to make it only about the external. It was because their hearts, we know, were being so affected, even though they didn't speak out about this, but we know just intuitively, that their hearts were being so affected by the sinful tendencies that they had and felt that they said, well, let's just make this an external issue. After all, that's what the Lord said. Um, If someone is caught in the act of adultery, then that should be punishable because of the violation of God's law. But the reality is that we are all guilty. Every one of us are guilty of practicing adultery in our hearts if we are not extremely careful at some point in time. And this, again, is the Lord's point. And so the Lord is preaching his message to prove just that, that we are all guilty before the Father. And he uses this particular subject this morning now that we're talking about as just another means, it's just another list, a listing subject for Jesus to prove his point that our heart is the issue. Our heart is the issue. Last time we talked about anger and how anger can possibly send you to hell because it all originates in the heart. We'll go back into that. That's on our website. You can look at that. But again, Jesus is saying now secondarily, when it comes to this subject, it's also a matter of the heart. Now, to help us understand that it's a heart issue, that marital unfaithfulness especially is a heart issue, the Lord's going to make his point in three ways. And so that's what I really want you to focus on this morning because that's what he does. And number one is he's going to correct their wrong belief, first of all. Secondly, he's going to teach them the truth of what God really means. And then he's going to teach them how to fix the problem. Okay? So here's what you're thinking that's wrong. Here's what the truth is. And here's what you need to do to fix it. So let's talk about the first one, correcting the wrong belief in verse 27. Jesus again says, it's just repeating what we've already read, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the religious leaders knew and the people knew that it was wrong to commit adultery. They knew that to enter into a sexual relationship with another married person was to break God's law. That's why in John chapter 8, they were trying to trap Jesus and try to... uh, show that he was not God come in the flesh, but this very subject was their point. They brought this woman who was caught in the act of adultery, 
and thrown at Jesus' feet to find out what he would say about it because they knew that the law said she would be and should be stoned. That's, there was no question about that. And the reality is if Jesus hadn't intervened and forgiven her, he would have been the one who would have had to throw in the first stone because this was his law. He is the author of law in the scripture. But he didn't. He forgave her because the point was they were trying to trap him and they were using this subject to get him trapped. But the reality still existed that it's wrong. It is a wrong thing to venture into. And it's not only in the Old Testament that we're told this in Exodus 20, but even in the New Testament, sexual sin is forbidden. Paul would say to the church in Corinth in chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists for us who those are that he wants to put in the category. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators nor idolaters. Those are idol worshipers, nor adulterers. There's the subject will inherit the kingdom of God. When Paul was talking to the churches in Galatia, chapter 5, verse 19, he says, now the deeds of the flesh, he's talking about the sinful flesh, are evident, they're clear, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. These all are issues of the sexual temptation. If you skip down to verse 21, he says, and things like these, of which I have forewarned you, just as I have already warned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the key word in all of that is practice. Hebrews 13:4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And then finally speaking to the church in Thyatira, In his letter, one of his seven letters, the Apostle John writes for the Lord's Spirit, chapter 2, verse 22, Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And so the people knew and we know that adultery is wrong. We know it from God whether it's fornication or any other type of sexual sin and the subject today, specifically adultery, we know it's wrong. But the question is, why is it wrong? Well, there are a couple reasons for this that Jesus doesn't bring up, but I want to bring it up, and that's because it's important for us to understand. Number one, it violates the sanctity of what marriage is all about. It absolutely destroys the sanctity of marriage because marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. It is the Lord Jesus who is figuratively, in our minds at least, married to his bride. We are the church, and he is married to his church. Paul would make that clear in Ephesians chapter 5. As husbands become the example in this life of Christ's love for his bride, husbands are to be the example of their love for their bride, so that he might present us to the Father, just like he will present the church to the Father. And so marriage is a human picture of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. And listen, he would never do anything to violate that love between himself and his church. Can you imagine the Lord Jesus Christ adulterating himself in regard to leaving the church to be a part of some other uh, religion or some other situation like that he would never adulterate his bride he would never leave us for someone else he died for us he died for the church to prove his love 
And so that's the first thing. And secondly, it brings Christ down. And that should be obvious from what we just said. To join oneself to someone outside of the sanctity of marriage that God has created is to violate themselves, is to violate the inner person. Again, which brings Christ down because the Lord taught us in 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? When we become people of God, when we're born again, we become the children of God. We become members of Christ. And so Paul says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That's ridiculous. He says, may it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh, speaking of the married couple. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Look at the union there is. The two come together as one in a human sense. But when we're born again, we become one with his spirit. And so Paul says, to that flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so it's a beautiful truth there. And so they thought they knew. The religious leaders of Jesus' day thought they knew and therefore passed that on to the people who thought they knew. But what they'd done is basically just simply devalued the commandment of God. And by doing that, they put themselves in an extremely dangerous place with God. And that should be clear by now. And And the issue is that puts anyone else in a dangerous predicament with God. I think of this kind of like this law, and people will treat the law of God kind of like this, is like a speed limit sign. You know, a sign is there to tell us the law says don't go too fast. Now, there's no way the sign is going to reach out and stop your car. That's not going to happen. The purpose of the sign is to say this is wrong. This is wrong. And people will often say, oh, I don't care what the sign says. I feel like doing this. Well, what they've just done is expose their hearts. They've just said, my heart says to me, I don't care what that sign says. I don't care that that sign is a representation of the law, and I'm going to do what I want to do anyway. I think about this every time I come through Earliesville. There's a speed limit sign there that says 35 and there's a little black box underneath that and as you get close to it it lights up telling you what your speed is a lot of times people just blow past it i've seen them in front and behind me and for me i'm a grandpa and so i like to drive the speed limit but it'll flash and say 36 35 34 37 38 you hit 40 it turns red and it starts flashing even brighter at you to warn you that you're breaking the law and so at that point we have a choice either to follow what God says or not to follow what God says, because we know that all authority is given by God. The danger here in this subject of adultery is that people often think, oh, I'll never go that far. I would never do that. I would never do that to my wife or to my husband. But they misjudge the flesh. That's the problem. They misjudge the tempting power and its natural power. And they further misjudge what God says is important. It's the heart. That's what God is after. And so the Lord teaches them this truth in verse 28. Here's what you thought. 
that it's all just about the external. And I'm telling you, that's not right. It's really about what the internal has to say and thinks. Verse 28, I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is Jesus doing? Number one, he's telling them, I am putting your traditions below who I am. Number one, because I am God. Meaning they were not to put themselves in the place of God and try to discern what God had said. It wasn't for them to do that. It wasn't right for them to determine what God was saying, right or wrong. God was the authority. He is the authority, and that's what Jesus is claiming here. And, beloved, listen, neither are we. Not only were they not to do that, but we're not to do that either. Some people satisfy their actions with adultery by convincing themselves it's love. I mean, I know that I'm married, but I just really love this person. And there's lots of reasons that that kind of thing happens. We don't have time to go into, but that's what they end up thinking that they just don't love their spouse anymore. It's just not there anymore. And many will say, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? I mean, that's why he came, right? He wants me to have a happy life. Well, I don't love that person anymore. I love this person now. And so it's okay in the eyes of God to love the one that I feel I love because he wants me to be happy. Some will just slough it off as, well, that was a mistake. You know, I just wasn't paying attention. Uh, kind of the two ships that pass in the night. And, and um, well, it's just not as bad as somebody else. And they'll just slough it off that way. And the extreme is when couples think it's even healthier for them to swap spouses. And we thought we'd never see that in our days, but we've had TV shows. And I don't really know anything about it, so I won't be too hard on it. But the whole title is Trading Spouses. When you think of a title like that, you think, well, what does that mean? You know, I get the kicks and giggles, but the reality is, why would you ever do that? I mean, why even create something like that? Unless there's something that's either going to make money from it or it's either going to sell to the lustful tendencies of the heart, which is exactly what it is. It's just a sinful way to fulfill the lustful desires of the heart, making marriage, listen, even more confusing for everybody especially the children that grow up in that home. You think of a show that trades spouses and what confusion that would bring into the life of children. And many children have experienced that kind of confusion where they don't even understand what a real married relationship is anymore. They don't get it. They see this happening and they're confused about what marriage is to be and so they just don't want to be a part of it at all in some cases. In fact, I found this article on kindred.org says infidelity and the divorce that often follows is a legacy passed from one generation to the next. As adults, these children of infidelity are more likely to be unfaithful to their own partner and children of divorced parents have a higher than average divorce rate as adults. Jennifer Harley Chalmers, Ph.D., written who wrote surviving an affair believes one of the important lessons children learn when a parent is unfaithful is thoughtlessness quote doing what you please regardless of how it affects other people unquote research by judith wallerstein co-author of the unexpected legacy of divorce shows that experiencing parental divorce during childhood has a what she calls a sleeper effect 
The worst symptoms often appear when children of divorce leave home and try to form intimate relationships and families of their own, but do so with much less ability to trust and little idea of what a lasting marriage looks like. And that proves the point. But there's more. There's a lady by the name of Angela or Anna Nogales, Ph.D., author of Parents Who Cheat, How Children and Adults Are Affected When Their Parents Are Unfaithful, coined the term, quote, children of infidelity, unquote, to identify children of any age whose parent or parents engage in one or more acts of infidelity. As permissive as society has become, most children are badly hurt by parents' infidelity because, like the betrayed parent, they feel betrayed. More than 800 grown children, that's a significant number, whose parents were unfaithful responded to Nogales' online Parents Who Cheat survey. And here's what they said. 88.4% felt angry toward the cheating parent. 62.5% felt ashamed or embarrassed. 80.2% felt that it influenced their attitudes towards love and relationships. 70.5% said their ability to trust others had been affected. 83% stated that they feel people regularly lie. 86% reported they still believe in monogamy. But by and large, adult children of infidelity know from experience the extent to which a family suffers with parents' betrayal and so do not want to follow in their unfaithful steps is accurate. A 2007 survey found 93% respondents rated faithfulness as the single most important component of a successful marriage. And we have had so many beautiful stories over the years of what a successful and loving marriage relationship looks like. I was drawn in our book of, by Paul Miller in his study we've been doing on Wednesday nights. If you're following along in that study, you'll have read this this last week. When he gives the illustration of Robertson McQuilkin, and Robertson McQuilkin's gone on to be with the Lord, his wife's gone on to be with the Lord, but he was the former president of Columbia International University, which was formerly Columbia Bible College. And Paul Miller writes this about Robertson, who was caring for his ailing wife, who was really growing worse with Alzheimer's all the time. And she had gotten to a place where she didn't remember him really, uh, but yet he quit his job as the president to care for his wife in those days. And so a student asked him this, if he had ever gotten tired of caring for Muriel, he replied, tired every night. That's why I go to bed. And then they said, no, I mean, tired of, and then she tilted her head toward Muriel, kind of like this, who sat silently in her wheelchair, her vacant eyes saying, no one at home just now. Robertson said, why no, I don't get tired. I love to care for her. She's my precious. Robertson chose love over self-fulfillment, Paul writes. However, many people end a relationship if it isn't meeting their needs. Their love evaporates if the relationship is not mutual, if it's not physical, if the other person doesn't communicate, or if one party isn't carrying his or her share of the load. But I love what Paul writes here. He says, but if our love depends on how the other person loves us, then what we really have is a business deal not love. That's a beautiful and very powerful statement. I think Paul's nailed it right on the head. And many people are living their lives as a business deal instead of a sacrificial love like the Lord gave for his church. Now, as the Lord continues, he makes his point even clearer with the phrase. Notice he says, looks at a woman. And we really need to study this because a lot of people have had questions about this over the year. 
the years. And then he also says to lust for a woman. Well, what does he mean by looks on a woman? It's talking about the continuous process of looking. That's what the Lord is really referring to here. And to lust for her would be the goal of the intended continual process of looking. So the two go hand in hand. And again, it does really help us a lot because Jesus is exposing the heart once again, purposefully, intentionally saying that when the heart purposefully and intentionally looks with the desire to gratify its sinful self, that's when it becomes wrong. That's what he's referring to here. And it all begins in the heart. This is the person, just as an example, who purposefully watches and looks at and looks for sexually oriented television shows or movies, for example. The one who purposefully is looking at certain magazines to gratify his or her lusts or to drive by the billboard sign in hopes that they're going to see that perfect specimen that's been displayed there advertising whatever it is they're advertising. Or even the person who loves the beach, not because of the sun, the wind, and the waves, but because of the scenery that's there, if you get the point. And so I think it's pretty clear that the Lord's not talking about the unexpected times. He's not talking about those moments when something tempts you, that we're, when we're caught off guard, like when you're standing in the checkout line and your eyes glance over and you catch the picture or the subject of some magazine on the cover or when somebody's out jogging on the road and you're just driving by and you're caught off guard for just a second because your flesh is still there. We don't get rid of it, right? We're dead to it, but it still can be activated in our minds. Or when you're in a store and you see somebody really dressed well and it catches your attention, those can be all temptations. But that's not what the Lord's talking about here. He says there's no sin in that unless the heart stays focused on that particular subject. That becomes the issue. But if the person is able to catch that and realize there's something wrong here and reorients the mind to another subject and changes the temptation, then there's no sin there. It was Charles Spurgeon who wrote that infamous statement that I love to remember often. He said, I can't keep a bird from flying over my head. That's going to happen all the time, basically. But I can keep it from making a nest in my hair. And that becomes really the point. Very well said. So when the eyes stay focused and the actions follow, the desire of where the eyes are looking is when the heart is involved And sin comes into play. You remember King David? Let's just think about him as an example here for just a minute. You know, the reality is, if you know the story, when David was supposed to be off to war, that's where he lost first in this whole thing. He didn't really sin by just seeing Bathsheba when she was out on her rooftop. That wasn't the sin. The sin came into play when he fulfilled his lustful desires and called for her to come to his place and then committed adultery, notice, with her. And I'll talk about her in just a second because the sin, beloved, was already in the heart. It was already there. In fact, James says it this way in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, each one of us is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. We've talked about this over the years and we've said that, remember, it's not just 
a happenstance that this comes about, but it's when our own lust internally is captivated by something. And then James says, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so if you notice the progression there, a person is tempted when he or she is enticed by the lust that's already there in the heart. And then that lust gives birth to sin and is allowed to be enticed even more. And the temptation then comes to fulfill that that lust and then brings forth sin, which brings forth death. So there is a a process there that becomes very important for us to think about as we're going to listen to what the Lord tells us in just a minute. So in his example now, adultery is sin because of everything we've said. It, con- it is conceived in the heart first as lust, and then when it has the opportunity to fulfill that desire, it gives way to it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, and I wanted to bring this up again, many women are growing in their sexual unfaithfulness. Uh, when it comes to adultery. Now, this is a little bit of a dated article. I tried to find something a little newer, but this one seemed to be very pertinent. From June 12th of 01, this was an ABC News article that said, no woman is adultery proof, according to psychologist and author Dr. Bonnie Aker. More than 50% of all married women at some point cheat on their mates. More than 50%. Have you ever wondered why Bathsheba went through with what David's intentions were? You ever thought about that? It's kind of fascinating when you think about it, really. Some have said, well, you know, David was the king and uh, she really didn't have any way to get out of it. I mean, after all, how do you resist the king? He's going to, you know, there would just be a bad deal. Well, that's not true. She knew the law of God, just like we were expressing earlier. She, She was a Hebrew. She understood what God had said about adultery. She was married herself to Uriah. She knew that it would violate her marriage to him. But she followed through because her heart was just as sinful as David's. That was the problem. And she wasn't an innocent victim in any of this. She was very much privy and a part of all of this. In fact, she encouraged, I'm going to say, David's lust. Now, I'm going to read between the lines here a little bit, and we want to be careful ever doing that because the Lord doesn't tell us this, but let's just use our brains here for just a minute. In those days, people took baths on the rooftop. Have you ever wondered why there wasn't something blocking King David from seeing Bathsheba while she was bathing on the rooftop? Now, I don't know what the structures looked like around then, but we probably could look historically. But evidently, David had a vantage point that would be able to see her exposed body. So you wonder in your mind a little bit as this story begins to unfold why she didn't do something to cover herself. Now, I'm not blaming Bathsheba alone in all of this. I mean, she was uh, just a woman taking a bath as far as we know. But as the story unfolds, she certainly fulfilled her part in it all. She could have been more careful. Commentator Arthur Pink made an interesting observation, something that we really should take to heart when he was talking about this subject. He said, if lustful looking is so grievous a sin, then those who dress and expose themselves with the desire to be looked at and lusted after are not less but perhaps more guilty. In this matter, it's not only too often the case that men sin, but women tempt them to do so. How great then must the guilt of the great majority of modern 
who deliberately seek to arouse the sexual passions of young men. How much greater still is the guilt of most of their mothers for allowing them to become lascivious temptresses. temptresses. That is a strong statement. And boy, that's not something that's very uh, common today and even thought should be said. But if we hear what he's saying, ladies, moms, what he's saying is you have to be aware that men are easily enticed through their visual stimulation, through their eyes. The eyes are the gateway to the heart. Now, the sin is already in the heart, but the eyes pick up what's out there and gives birth to a lot of these sexual temptations. And when you allow yourself or your daughters to dress in provocative ways because you just simply think it's cute or you think you just can't find clothes to fit them, you have become part of helping to open the door of sinful hearts potentially. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but certainly potentially that's true. You ask any guy out here and he's going to tell you the first thing that he notices the looks of a person. He is attracted by sight first and foremost. Now again, I want to be careful here. I'm not blaming Bathsheba per se. I'm not blaming women for the problems that have happened to them. That is a very painful thing that women go through in a lot of ways. But adultery in that subject takes two willful partners or it's not adultery. So I'm saying that both men and women need to consider what looking And what your looks do to other people, if you flaunt yourself in front of someone else because you want them to notice you, that could lead to sin. Job made clear reference to the eyes when he said of himself in chapter 31, I have made a covenant with my eyes. He was putting the blame back on himself. As for me, it's my issue. So I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I gaze at a virgin? In other words, he knew. His lustful heart was potentially activated by what he saw, and so he did what he could do to protect himself so that that was not stirred. So that's the truth. As Jesus corrects their thinking, helps them see the truth, that this is a matter of the heart, and now he teaches them how to fix the problem. So let's look at verse 29 and say a few words about this, and we'll be done. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now we listen to that and we go, that is a staggering statement. I mean, what is the Lord really teaching here? I mean, is he saying that we should gouge our eyes out? That we should go in this life and take some implement and pluck them out or we should whack off one of the limbs of our body to keep us saved or to save us from this adulterous temptation? There have been many people that have thought that. And there have been many people that have acted upon that. In fact, it was Origen, who was one of the early, very prominent leaders of the early church, who so took this to heart that he had himself castrated because he knew of his own temptations and didn't want to be victim to it. Some have believed that physical self-denial was much more holy, uh, a way to live. And so they practiced isolation. They would literally go up into caves and live in mountainsides and never be seen by people before. I even read of one person years ago who sat on the top of a pole 30 feet in the air or more for a balance of his life to remove himself from the temptations of being around people. Some people wore rough leather skins of animals to 
pricked themselves, if you will, every time they felt the temptations of their flesh so that they would be freed from it. Some did, in fact, gouge out their eyes. Some have literally cut off limbs, all in an attempt to be holy and keep the word of the Lord. Some, in fact, have promoted a life of celibacy. And that's what we have in the Catholic Church. It's what we have in the Episcopal Church. That's what we have with the nuns. It's, it's more holy to live separate from these physical temptations so that we can serve the Lord. But the reality is we've seen the negative effects of the same thing. You cannot change the heart by doing something to the body physically. Why? Because the heart is the problem. If you're going to gouge something out, you have to gouge out the heart. I'm not advocating that, okay? So don't leave here saying, Pastor said I should cut my heart out. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying, if you're going to fix the problem, the heart has to go. Well, you're not going to survive long on this earth if your heart's going to go. So why the illustration? What's Jesus really saying here? He's saying as drastic as those measures would be, if self-mutilation were the answer, I'm telling you, you have to be just as drastic in your hearts to fix the problem. In other words, you have to give up whatever is necessary to protect your heart, to keep your heart from going down that path. It was Joseph who gives us one of the greatest examples. And if you don't know the story, you go back and read Genesis in the latter chapters and you'll see this incredible story of this young man named Joseph. I'm going to read from chapter 39. Just a couple verses here, but basically it was Joseph was a young man who was sold into slavery into Egypt because his brothers hated him, Uh, but he was a godly man, served the Lord. He became well-known among the Egyptian leaders. He was taken into a man's house by the name of Potiphar, who was one of the uh, Egyptian leaders, but Potiphar had a beautiful wife, we're told. And one time where the story tells us that Potiphar was away, evidently doing some business on his business trip and left Joseph there in the house to run the household. And uh, Joseph also, we're told, was a very handsome young man. And so Potiphar's wife tried to get him to lie with her in an adulterous affair. And Joseph's response was, I got to get out of here. He fled the scene. He literally physically took off. And that's when he got in trouble. She went to her husband and said he tried to rape me. And Joseph was put in prison by God's divine providence uh, over time. So all of that happened from that. The point simply is Joseph saw the situation for what it was. He didn't sit back and say, now let's talk about this. I'm strong enough. You're strong enough. We can deal with this. We're adults here. We can refrain from this. He didn't say that. He just got out of there. That's a drastic measure. And so the Lord's point is, whatever entices you, whether it's a book or a movie or a TV show, if it's a vacation spot that you've just loved to go to, if it's refraining from certain stores that tempt you with their lingerie or whatever it might be or their billboards, it may be telling your wife what tempts you or your husband what tempts you, being honest with them and saying, I need your help with this. It may be seeking counseling from someone. It may be getting rid of the music that you listen to or moving even even from the house that you've lived in for so long because of your temptation with the neighbor beside you. That's pretty drastic. It could be moving to a different job 
or moving departments because of that person that's near to you and you feel tempted by. It may be purposefully looking in the other direction, literally changing the direction of your face when you're exposed to something that is troubling. It may be letting or telling your spouse even to drive the kids to school so that you're not enticed and tempted by someone else who may be there. And it on and on and on it goes. There's never ending amount of examples. You have to decide what it is that causes your lust to be welled up in your hearts so that your heart is protected. And by the way, just a little scientific thought here. Did you know that our brains are actually imprinted with things that come into them that are of sinful nature? As much as we want the good things to be imprinted, negative things are more easily imprinted in our minds. In fact, even as I say that, if I ask you to think about the first time you were tempted to look at a magazine or a television show, you can instantly go back to that moment, even if it's been 30, 40, 50 years ago, because you know in your heart it was wrong and you felt the temptation of it all, but yet you gave into it and now it's deeply imprinted into your minds. That's what happens. And so scientists now and psychologists know that we have to reboot the brain. We have to literally transform its thinking. We have to force it to go into a different direction. When we're tempted through our visual stimulation and our hearts become activated by it all, we have to find something that will literally redirect our brains so that they become re-imprinted with the correct message. And that can be in a lot of ways. It could be by reading your Bible. It could be listening to your favorite preacher, right? It could be listening to godly music or good movies or music, whatever it takes. In the moment, we have to be strong enough to say, Holy Spirit, I know that this is a temptation for me and I know where this is going to lead me. I need your help with this. Help me to redirect my mind so that I can re-imprint it and make it change and make it be what it needs to be. Now, the Lord is not asking us to be perfect. He's wanting us to understand that our unrighteousness will never reach the bar of his righteousness. In fact, our righteousness, rather, will never reach the bar of his righteousness. That's been the theme all along through this sermon. The righteousness of God is up here, and I'm going to show you through various subjects the Lord is saying how unrighteous you really are. You can make it external if you want, but I'm telling you, the Lord looks at your heart, and that's what must be changed. So we are to do whatever is necessary to keep from being controlled by the sinful tendencies that we have. Specifically, he's using this particular subject. If we even look on a person with lustful temptations, we've already committed the crime, the Lord says. And again, the Lord knows, and this is the beauty of Christ, is that we'll never be fully free from this. We're going to have that bird flying over our head forever. We're going to have the temptation of the bird building the nest in our hair, as Spurgeon would say. And that's not the issue. Our issue is to learn how to trust the Lord and to cast ourselves upon Him because of who He is and what He's done for us. The whole reason He came was not just to save us eternally. Praise His name for that, right? Amen? The whole reason he came, though, was to help us in this life to understand that we can't do it without him. We can't do it. 
We have to have his help. We need his daily forgiveness as he goes in intercession to the Father between us and him. Even in this subject saying, Father, he's trying, she's trying. I've paid the debt for them. Their sin has been paid for. There's no condemnation now. They can have a right relationship with you even in the midst of this very challenging circumstance. But we, on the other hand, learn that we've got to be a part of the solution. We have to do whatever is necessary as drastically as possible without mutilating our bodies. That's never an option. The Holy Spirit is in our bodies. We are the temple of the Spirit, so we would never do that. But we are to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus, recognizing our unworthiness and our inability to be righteous like we, we must be in, to, in order to enter into the presence of God. So let me close with this. It is from the little book that I've grown accustomed to reading in the mornings as I come into my office called The Valley of Vision. I've mentioned this to you before. It's from the Puritans many years ago who sought to purify the church from the corruption that was going on and from how it was being, to coin the term, adulterated by the pagan belief systems and how God's word was being overturned in such a terrible way. Uh, This one for this day was entitled, interestingly, during the week, The Cry of a Convicted Sinner. And that's where we all stand before the Lord without Christ. And so here's what the person writes. Save me from myself, from the artifices and the deceits of sin, from the treachery of my perverse nature, from the denying thy charge against my offenses, from a life of continual rebellion against thee, from wrong principles, from wrong views and ends. For I know that all my thoughts, all my affections, desires and pursuits are alienated from thee. I have acted as if I hated thee, although thou art love itself, have contrived to tempt thee to the uttermost, to wear out the patience, have lived evilly in word and action. Had I been a prince, I would long ago have crushed such a rebel, Had I been a father, I would long since have rejected my child. O thou father of my spirit, thou king of my life, cast me not into destruction. Drive me not from thy presence, but wound my heart that it may be healed. Break it that thine own hand may make it whole. Beautiful words from a heart that knows. And that's where we are, isn't it, beloved? We are just that way. We must have the cleansing power of God daily if we're to live purely in this life. It all begins in the heart. And Jesus will continue this theme as he gives us some other illustrations as he goes deeper into other things. Okay, So let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the glory of your truth, the cleansing power of your word, the cleansing power of the Lord Jesus. And how he just begins to stand at the pinnacle of everything as we live this life and we see more and more our sinfulness and our sinful tendencies. Lord, how dreadfully lost we are in our own insufficient ways of living and in our own ways of doing things and thinking how inaccurate we are when we miss the heart. So, Father, we fresh and new, cast ourselves before you, thanking you that we don't need to be saved again and again and again, but we do need to remember that we are weak in our flesh and we need to understand that Christ has paid the price for us all. 
for those that will recognize their sinful hearts and see the devastation of all that it's caused and look to Jesus as the one who will forgive and purify them and give them the right to be the sons of God. So Lord, we thank you and honor you today. We glorify you because you are the one who stood in our place on the cross. And you gave your life for us that in your Father's eyes we might be pure. Not because of us, but because of your blood. Because of your perfect life. Because of who you are as God come in the flesh. So we thank you, Lord. And we honor you this day. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would everyone stand, please? Am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Through the sun. Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for preparing a place for us. We thank you for Jesus who died for us to, so that he could go back home to be with you and, and prepare things for us. But we thank you so much for the price that he paid for our sins. So, Lord, we just 
ask that you would just put in the front of our minds to go out each and every day to tell others about that love, about that sacrifice that was made, and how easily they can become a child of yours because of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Lord's blessings to you all. Don't hug anybody. (laughs) Good to see you all this morning. Thank you for coming. Hey, brother.